Well, this morning we're going to join our brothers and sisters in Ephesus. In fact, if you please, we're going to go to church with them. We're going to be in their service. And there is something very, very special that has taken place and is going to take place uh, in this morning service, if you please, uh, in the Ephesian church that we're going to be a part of. And that is that one of the elders there has received from the Apostle Paul a letter from him to that group of believers. And therefore, it's a letter to you and me as well. Now, it's interesting because they have not heard from the Apostle Paul for perhaps up to five years. That's a long time not to hear from the great Apostle. You might remember that he was with them in Ephesus for three years, teaching them the Word of God, getting the gospel out, and that's how they came to saving faith. But then he was apprehended, and for a while he was there in Caesarea for two years, took that terrible ship ride to, uh, in fact it was a shipwreck if you want to put it that way, to Rome, and now he's under house arrest, and he's, he's he will have been there ultimately for upwards to about two years. So it's been a long time since these brothers and sisters have heard from the Apostle Paul, and yet today one of the elders has a letter from him in his hands, and he is going to be sharing that with them. And you and I are going to have the joy of that. So you can imagine the excitement and the anticipation as they have just discovered that the Apostle Paul has written to them. And, uh, and this is an amazing thing, though. It's really an amazing thing, because here is a man who's been unjustly accused. He's been incarcerated now for a number of years, still in that situation. He's uncertain about the outcome of his trial and even to the fact that it might lead to his execution. So what is he going to write? He takes up his pen and expresses on paper what's overflowing in his heart. So what does he write? Complaints and discouragements? Well... We might not have been surprised if that were the case. That's sometimes what's happening to us. How about anger and bitterness? You might think this guy has a just reason for being very angry and upset with the Lord and bitter about the way life has treated him and is treating him. How about this? Doubts and fears, since he doesn't know but what maybe he's going to experience execution. No. (laughs) No. He begins with one of the greatest concerts of praise to God ever penned. And in Paul's concert of praise, he writes in such a way as to include the Ephesian believers as well as you and me. As he expresses in praise to God who saved him and saved you and me. And listen, if you're saved this morning, and I trust that you are, if you're saved this morning, there would be something very, very wrong in your relationship with God if you read through Paul's concert of praise and your heart just doesn't overflow as well with praise and thanksgiving. And so this morning, may that be what takes place in my heart and life. And of course, I get the benefit of preparing the message, so I already know where I'm going. I've looked at it, but I say, Lord, just let me overflow again with this concert of praise and prayer or thanksgiving to you, and may it happen in your lives as well, as it must have in the Ephesian lives as they read this letter from Paul. Well, may we begin then in this concert of praise to God who saved you and me. And if you are out, have the outline, we're going to begin with an overview. 
an overview of Paul's concert of praise to God. This is an overview. I think it's best we read it first. So we're going to read the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1. And by the way, if you're saved, this passage captures you. It captures your past, right now your presence, and your future. It's amazing. Follow along as I read it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge to our inheritance of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What amazing, astounding words. By the way, verses 3 through 14 are all just one sentence. That is something else. You don't see that here, of course, in our English language, but that is just one punctuated sentence that Paul writes. I imagine the grammarians must have had a wonderful time with him if you think about teaching him Greek and writing that way. We begin, though, this morning with an overview of Paul's concert of praise to God in those verses. And uh, it's amazing. It's, It's a masterpiece. First, Paul describes God's saving work in us in three tenses. You probably picked that up. He describes God's saving work in you and me in three tenses. First, the past tense being that of our election in verses 3 through 6. He says, for example, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And so he picks up the past tense of what God did before you ever existed or I ever existed or the Ephesians ever existed. And then he moves into the present tense. 
That means a time when Christ came in the earth and He became your and my redemption and we receive forgiveness through Him. And that, of course, is verses 7 and 8. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. So there, that's the, the present tense. The Lord's coming, you're being born, you're getting saved, you're getting forgiven, you're getting redeemed, redeemed and so forth. And then he moves into the future tense, that being our inheritance. Talks about the inheritance in verses 8 through 14. There you heard me and you follow along as he talked about the summing up of all things in Christ and the completion of our redemption. So Paul praises God for the past. That's God's activity in eternity, even before the foundation of the world. He praises God for the present. And that's God's activity in human history in Christ and in you and me who believe. And then he moves into the future and praises him for that. God's ending history with the summing up of all things in Christ. But secondly, Paul specifically delineates the Trinity. You can't miss that. You can't miss it in those 14 verses. Chapter, verses 3 through 14. He delineates a trinity. In fact, in verses 4 through 6, he says what? The Father. He focuses on the Father who elects. In verses 7 through 12, he focuses on the Son who redeems and who will sum up all things. And in verses 13 and 14, he focuses on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who seals. And so he delineates the trinity in these brief uh, uh, verses, which is really one sentence for Paul. And thirdly, Paul describes, if you'll notice, the role each person of the Trinity plays in blessing you. He describes the role that each one plays in blessing us, or if you please, you, me. We start with the origin of our blessing. Look at verse 3. The origin of our blessing. Bless be the God and Father. That's the origin. What do I mean by that? God the Father is the subject of almost every main verb in these verses. He's all over the place. It is He who blessed us, verse 3. It is He who chose us, verse 4. It is He who predestined us to adoption and to be His sons, verse 5. It is He who freely bestowed on us His grace, in verse 6. Indeed, He lavishes His grace upon us, in verse 8. He also is the one who made known to us his will and purpose which he set forth in Christ, and that is to sum up all things in Christ uh, there. And further, he accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 11, you can't miss it. The Father is all over the place. In fact, the nouns also tell us that God the Father is the origin of his blessing you and me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. For example, the noun Paul refers in quick succession to God's love in verse 4. He moves to his grace in verses 2 and 6, as well as his will in verse 9, and to his purpose and his plan in verses 9 through 11. As theologian author John R. Stott says, the whole paragraph is full of God the Father who has set his love and poured his grace upon us and who is working out his eternal plan. It's all over the place. So the origin of our blessing is God the Father. Listen, what, and Alex, you alluded to this in our song service, what great joy fills my heart that I know 
And I belong to God who is my Father. I mean, this is a staggering portion of Scripture. It is a glorious passage. And to think that Bill stands here and you sit there and you can say in your heart, I know and I belong to God who is my Father. And look what my Father has done for me. Look what He is right now doing for me. Look what He has bound Himself to do in the future for me. It's there in verses 3 through 14. Amazing. Remember, this is a guy awaiting his trial who may lose his life. And he just bursts forth in his penned letter here. Praise to God for that. But we move next to the sphere in your outline. The sphere of our blessing is the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father accomplishes it through His Son. Look at verse 3 again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, literally. Paul not only makes it clear that God the Father is the origin of our being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, he further points out that Jesus Christ is the sphere of our blessing. In the first 14 verses, Jesus Christ is mentioned either by name or the title, Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Beloved, or by the pronouns, uh, the pronouns and possessive, he, him, his, no fewer than 15 times. My. The phrase, in Christ, or in him, occurs 11 times in this section of scripture. That's why we often have in the front wall, Christ in you, right there, the hope of glory, out of Colossians 1.27. Because it's true, isn't it? Christ in me is my hope of glory and your hope of glory. In the very first verse, Paul states that the believers are saints who are in Christ. In the very first verse, he says, there, uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this morning in the Herald, in fact, it is today, of course, it would have been, what, yesterday, I guess, over in Europe, uh, the Pope has now canonized Mother Teresa. They're searching for miracles. They have, to, have done two miracles, and I think they sort of gave up on that and just concluded she obviously must have done two or more, and so they have now made her a saint. They've canonized her. Guess what, dear ones? God, if I can put it this way, I won't use the word canonized, he made you a saint the moment you got saved. Amen. Think about that. What's it mean? It means one who has been declared by God, you are holy and you now belong to me. That's an amazing thing. And we still sin. We still sin. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and you'll see it there. And yet God declares you are a saint. And that's what it says here. He calls these Ephesian believers saints. And you know what? What a joy. Now some of us, we need to get some out to tarnish, you know, our, our halos tarnished. We've got to get it kind of glowing again. But uh, uh, we'll talk about that next week. But uh, no, if you're redeemed, if you're saved, you are God's saint. Amazing. We don't wait for somebody to canonize us. You're already a saint. That's an amazing truth. Amazing truth. But 
Listen, formerly we were in Adam, not in Christ, belonging to the old uh, fallen humanity, but now we are in Christ, belonging to the new redeemed humanity, and that's why Paul calls us saints. And it is in Christ that God has blessed us in time, having chosen us in eternity, and will cause us to reign with his Son in the future when he sums up all things in Christ. The sphere of our blessing is our Lord Jesus Christ. We now come to the divine executive in your outline. The divine executive of our blessing who applies the work of Christ to our hearts and lives is the Holy Spirit of promise. He now introduces him. The Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is clearly active in applying all these spiritual blessings, though he is not mentioned until we get to verses 13 and 14. And look at those verses. Verses 13 and 14. In him, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, Paul had been there for three years. They had heard the gospel. They listened to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. What happened? They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They believed that Jesus was the only one who could save them. What happened? He says, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit, a promise. Huh. Who is given as a pledge, an arabon in the Greek there, of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. And so he has introduced and delineated for you and me the Trinity, God the Father who blesses you, and the sphere is God the Son, and the divine executive that brings it all about is God the Holy Spirit. By the way, if you read all the way through the book of Ephesians, you'll find he has introduced, the Holy Spirit introduced in all six chapters. Although back then they didn't have chapters, but he's introduced in all six chapters of this letter to the Ephesians. That brings us to the next major movement, though, that we now swim in this, if you please. We dive right into it. Paul's concert of praise, his exaltation of God, his concert of praise, His exaltation of God. First, he exalts God by blessing him. I want you to see that. He exalts God by blessing him. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, in verse 3, Paul uses the word blessed three different times in that verse. Blessed is eulogeo in the Greek. Of course, you would understand eulogy comes from that. Eulogy comes from It means a message of praise, of commendation, the declaration of a person's goodness. And we bless God this morning not just because of the good things He does, but we bless Him because He is good. If you please, He is the author of good. And that's stated throughout all the Scriptures. And Paul just burst forth in exalting God by blessing him. Now, Paul gives some specific reasons for blessing God here in verse 3. He blesses him because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Who is this God? Or who is it that God has blessed? says it. Us. Us. 
the redeemed, the saints, we who are saved. He has already blessed us. Those who are in Christ, the saints, as verse 1 says. You know, when somebody has done something, I mean, beyond the calling and meets a specific need that you have. Let's say that you're dying because you need a kidney. Both kidneys have failed. And somebody comes along, comes up and, and they're a match. And they will, and you don't know them. They don't know you, but they're a match and they hear about your situation and they say, you know, I'm willing to volunteer and give up one of my kidneys. And they place that person's kidney in you and you get to live because of that. Now that's what you call, call going beyond the call of duty. And what happens? Your heart is just so consumed that somebody who doesn't know you would do that for you. And how valuable is that? You get to go right on living because somebody did that for you. Or maybe it's some other organ that you desperately need and would die without it. That's what we're talking about. Paul is so consumed that God, through his Son, did this for him and for the Ephesian believers as well as for you and me. And so he says, you, and what you, you, you bless me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He just has to burst out in praise and blessing God because of that. To what degree has God blessed us? Notice in verse three, the verbs in the past tense. Pay attention to those verbs. It's in the past who has What is it? Blessed. Who has blessed us. We often find ourselves praying and asking God to do that which is already done, don't we? Lord, give me more love. But the love of God's already been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. And he's declared in Romans 8, the end of it, nothing could ever separate us from that love. So then we say, well, Lord, give me peace. And Jesus says, but I said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world gives, give I unto you. We ask for strength. Lord, I just, I just need some more strength. I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but we ask for more strength. And Jesus says, he says, I have said, you can do all things through me who strengthens you. And that list goes on and on. Listen, the Bible says his divine power has granted already to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Second Peter 1.3 How greatly has God blessed you and me this morning? I mean, Paul just, he just has to burst forth the praise and blessing to God. How greatly has he blessed Paul? How greatly has he blessed these Ephesians? How greatly has he blessed you this morning and me this morning? The Bible says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, listen to this, the children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You know what that means? It means Christ's riches are your riches. Christ's riches are your riches. Christ's resources are your resources. Christ's righteousness is your righteousness, and you should know that. From Scripture, Christ's power is your power. Christ's position is your position. Christ's possession is your possession. Paul put it this way. This is a verse that captures my mind and your mind. He put it this way. All things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, what's he talking about there? He's talking about the Bible teachers that God gifts and gives to you. 
whether Apollos or Paul or Apollos or Cephas, listen to he then he goes, or the world? Or life? Or death? You say, well, why did he throw that in? Because death has become your servant. That's why. And it can't take you down until God says, I am finished with you now and ready to take you home. Or things present or things to come. All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. 1 Corinthians three twenty-one and following. Just ponder all that for a moment and try to take all that in. I mean, I think sometimes, you know, we, we, we treat God like a genie. You know, you rub the bottle, you know, and he's supposed to come out and do what you want him to do. I think sometimes we rub him the wrong way. Well, forgive that pun. But th- you, you look at this passage. He's blessed us already with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. I mean, it's overwhelming. Well, that's Paul's concert of praise. He exalts God by blessing him. But now secondly, secondly, there's a little bit of difference here. He exalts God by praising him. Just a slight slight difference here. When Paul exalts God by pronouncing a blessing upon him, he worships God by expressing the glory of his person. Blessed be God! Because he's... Full of goodness. He is goodness and so forth. But when he exalts God by praising him, listen to this carefully, he states the specific reasons why he blesses and worships God. Now he's going to get specific. And it's amazing. He begins by praising God. And this begins Paul's first stanza of praise. There are three stanzas of praise in this one huge sentence by Paul. This begins the first stanza. So, he praises God in specifics. Here we go. Number A, because he chose us in his son. Verse 4. It's overwhelming. It is something that just draws the believer in, in amazement. Because he chose us in his son. Verse 4, just as he chose us in him. Before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. The meaning of God's choosing us, the word chose is eklego, which we get our word elect from. Used here in the aorist tense, the middle voice. What does that mean? It indicates God's total independent choice. God chose by himself and for himself. The purpose for his choosing is stated in verses 6, verse 12, and verse 14. What is it? For the praise of his glory. For the praise of his glory. Let me illustrate from Scripture some acts of God choosing. And let me say it up front. I don't understand this. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I, when I study this part of God's election, God's choosing, and, and me being involved in that and being redeemed, being one of the saints, I'm, I'm totally without words. I mean, but I'm overwhelmed. I, I don't pretend to, to understand the mind and the ways of God. All I can do is share what he has put on scripture. Listen to the illustration. God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world to be his special people. And he did so simply out of his sovereign love. And may I add to that, as terrible as they became in rebellion against him, God says, I will still 
accomplish my purpose in them and with them. Think about that. Just think about that. I would have given up on them a long, long time ago. And I've often said to God, I'm amazed you haven't given up on me. And yet, there it is. All through Scripture. And God knew all this before He ever chose them. How about that? We go on. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 5.21 that God's heavenly angels are elect. So the righteous angels are elect, chosen by Him to glorify His name and be His messengers. In John 6.37, Jesus said, All that the Father, listen to this, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Now I appreciate that because it also talks about a coming there, doesn't it? Somebody who has come. But he says, all that the Father gives me. In Luke, he writes the book of Acts in chapter 13, 48. He says these amazing words. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the ones appointed to eternal life believed. Paul adds his own testimony to that when he wrote to his disciple Timothy these words, For this reason I endure all things for the... And by the way, he's in the Mamertine prison now. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Why? That they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with the eternal glory. What's he saying? He said, man, I endure all this because God has chosen some out there. I don't know who they are, so I just get the gospel to them. I just keep on going, and God's the one who does the saving. Do I understand that? No. But I'll tell you this. I've said it before. You go out and try to win those people who are unsaved to the Lord, and you'll always have a response to them. Look, I don't want to talk about that. Look, you got your religion, I got my religion. Look, you believe God's this way. I believe he's a God of love. I believe that everybody who makes a good effort, they all get to heaven. I believe there are many religions. What's going on? It's showing the deadness of their heart. It's showing their pride and rebellion that they say, I want nothing. By the way, we were all there at one time until God moved upon our heart and brought us to saving faith. I don't understand that. But here he declares it. He says, because he chose us in his son. And notice the time of this wonderful event before the foundation of the world. Do you know what that means? He chose me before he said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's staggering. And Paul just bursts out in praise because of this. The time of this wonderful event, as I said, before the foundation of the world, Paul writes that here in Revelation 13.8. It tells us that our names were written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. I mean, before Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created them and the earth. He says, I've already got my book out. And, oh, there's Bill Walker. He's going to get say he's one of mine. Whoa, that was 6,000 more years ago. Amazing. We belong to God as his chosen ones before time began and will continue to belong to God long after time is no more. And the result from God's choosing us that we would be holy and blameless before him and we'll deal with that later on. But now he moves to the next reason why he praises God, the specific reason, because he predestined us to adoption as sons. Whoa, what does that mean? Because 
He predestined us to adoption as sons. Verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. All that you'll notice it's always in or through Jesus Christ. Always. Always in his son. According to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. We need to distinguish between your spiritual birth and your spiritual adoption. I mean, I would dare say most Christians don't understand the distinction here. You see, the process of your spiritual birth is explained by Paul in verse 13. There's your spiritual birth. What's it say? Look at verse 13. In him, you also, after listening to the message of truth. Nobody got saved without hearing the truth. Or today you might say reading it. Or having it explained to them. The message of truth is that Jesus is the Son of God. He came out of heaven, went to the cross, perfectly sinless, went to the cross, bore your sin, bore all your judgment, and then God poured his wrath out upon him, and three days later he was raised from the dead. That's the message. The death, burial, and resurrection, and he did it for you. He says, you heard this, the gospel of salvation, having also believed. Now that's not just head knowledge. It means God did a work in you and you said, I know I need that, I want that, I'm, I'm asking Jesus to save me. What happened? You were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit promise. Holy Spirit came into you, gave you the life of Christ, gave you His righteousness, and you were born into His family. But that's not adoption. <laughs> so, as a child of God born into God's family, what's adoption? I mean, that's kind of bizarre, isn't it? If you're a born one in somebody's family, what's, what's adoption? Well, Lewis Perry Chafer, in his Systematic Theology, explains your spiritual adoption with these words. Listen carefully. He writes, The spiritual use of the word adoption signifies the placing of a newborn child in point of maturity into the position of privilege and responsibility attached to an adult son. Perplexity may arise over why a born and thus a natural child would be adopted at all. For adoption, as usually conceived, could add nothing to rights which are gained by natural birth. That's understandable. He goes on, It is thus, however, that the true spiritual meaning of adoption appears. Now listen carefully. The naturally born child is adopted by, I'm sorry, the naturally born child is by adoption advanced positionally, and given at once the standing of an adult son. Since spiritual adoption occurs at the time one is saved, just like your birth did, spiritual birth, and thus becomes a child of God, there is no childhood period recognized in the Christian experience. You know, little babies, he's got saved, he's a brand new Christian, that's true. Oh, he's just a little baby in Christ. What does he say? He says, no, I gave him all the Holy Spirit that somebody who's walked with God for years has. I've given him all the provisions and the power that somebody who's walked with God for years has. That brand new Christian has it all. I expect that person to walk in fellowship with me, and I expect him to overcome sin and temptation just like the one does who has walked with me for years. That's the significance. But there's another added dimension to that adoption. And that is it also relates to the future when God says, I'm now going to complete your redemption. And you're going to be glorified and enter into the reign with my son. And adoption has to do with that sonship privilege there. 
amazing. God did this according to the kind intention or good pleasure of his will, it says in verse 5. And what happens to Paul? He said, that stanza number one, and now the chorus. He just bursts in praise to God. Look at it in verse 6, if you will. The first stanza and the first chorus, now the conclusion. To the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. I am staggered by this. That I am a child of God. I am a son of God. I am an heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. I have all these blessings already. Amazing. And now Paul begins the second stanza of praise. And that is, he goes on with his list here, number C, because he redeemed us through his son's blood. He exalts God. And he praises him because he redeemed us through his son's blood. Verses 7 and 8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of grace which he lavished on us. God's redemption of you resulted in his forgiving you of all your trespasses and sins. All of them. It removed all condemnation. From those, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus made a payment for all your and my sins, all of them, even those in the future that we're going to commit, through the shedding of his blood, and he satisfied completely God's offended holiness and righteous demands by paying our penalty in full. What does it mean to you that God has completely forgiven you of all your sins? Perfect Holy God says, you are my child. You are my son. You are completely forgiven. Staggering. I still live in a fallen world with a fallen sinful nature, and yet I am completely forgiven. No wonder Paul praised God, emphasizing that. And we go to number four. He praises him because in his son he made known to us the mystery of his will. Verses 8 through 4, 12. Verse 8 through 12. He praises because his son, uh, in his son he made known to us the mystery of his will. I'm going to read verses 8 through 12 again, which he lavished on, okay, in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. You say, what in the world did he just say there? Could he make that a little more simplified? And I agree with you. That was a lot crammed into one huge sentence there. But what did he say? What did he mean? We have been given wisdom and special insight that the world knows nothing of at all. Have you thought about that? We take so much for granted today. 
The world's falling apart at the seams. It's living in dangerous, extremely dangerous times all over the world, not just certain hot spots, but all over now. And here you and I, we have been given wisdom and insight. What does it mean, for example, to you to know the way to heaven when the mass majority does not know it at all? Out there groping around, grabbing hold of this religion, grabbing hold of this effort and so forth. They know nothing at all. What does it mean to you to know in specific detail God's plan for this world and Satan's world system? What does that mean to you? That you know where things are headed and how things are going to work out. Including, by the way, this election. What does that mean to you and me to know that? That it's revealed to us. The mystery, something that was hidden before, the mystery of Jesus. He said, I'm going to reveal to my children, my sons, my plans. And the power and will that I have that will accomplish it all. What does it mean to you to know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is indeed literally going to come back and set up his earthly kingdom? Think about that. The world thinks you're kooky. That you actually believe that fairy tale? That's the world system. By the way, Satan believes it. Boy, he believes it. All his demons believe it. What does it mean to you to know that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God? What does it mean to you to know that God is going to sum up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth? And what does it mean to you to know you have received an inheritance and a guarantee that guarantees your future reign with Christ here upon the earth? That's what he's talking about. Amazing. And Paul, what happens? Well, he moves now into the second stanza. It's finished now. And his chorus of praise in verse 12. To the end, he says that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. He praises God's glory in his glory again. And then he moves to his third stanza. And that is number E in your outline there. Number five. He exalts God by praising Him because He saved us and sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. He praises Him because He saved us and sealed us. God doesn't just save you to lose you. If He saved you, He keeps you saved. And He did so with the Holy Spirit of promise. Don't you love it? Let me ask you, have you received your promise ring from the Lord Jesus Christ? I have. That's what Araban means, by the way, there. Let me read those two verses. In him, you also, that's in Jesus Christ. Always in Jesus Christ. Did you notice everything that was provided for you by God the Father is always provided in his Son? And when you get saved, you are placed in his Son. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, what happened? You were sealed. I won't even go into all that. It goes back from the Roman world when they would seal these documents, you know, with a ring and the wax and so forth. But it were never to be broken except for the one it was given to. You were sealed in him with what? The Holy Spirit. Don't you love it? A promise. A promise. He goes on, who is given as a 
Arabon, a pledge. That's the promise ring. I have the Holy Spirit in my life. He's my promise ring. It's a guarantee that I am involved in receiving all these spiritual blessings Paul has been talking about, that we've been talking about, who's given as our pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. That means the completion of this salvation that God's begun in you. He who began a good work in you will perfect it, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6 says. Paul then has to put his third course in. Same course, in the third stanza, to the praise of his glory. Amazing. Well, Paul's concert of praise, and now we go quickly, our response to God for so great a salvation. Surely you've seen God the Father all over those, that, those, that big sentence. You've seen the Lord Jesus Christ in that big sentence, and you've seen the Holy Spirit there in verses 13 and 14, and how he orchestrated it all for your benefit. You've seen that. It's all over there. And now you've seen also you, have you not? Have you not seen yourself in Paul's concert of praise there because he talk, he's talking to the saints he's talking to you they're saved he's talking to me you've seen yourself okay Paul's concert of praise our response to God for so great a salvation what should be our response number one being in Christ Jesus be faithful be faithful verse one Paul an apostle Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. This is an essential mark of every genuine saint, every truly born-again Christian. You are faithful. It doesn't mean you don't fall into sin. We all do. But there's something about when you fall into sin, you feel guilty, you feel down uh, and miserable, and you get back into fellowship and go on with him. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, such an astounding declaration of the gospel, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Now listen to this. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What's he mean? You get God's righteousness from faith. Once you have that faith, you move on in faith. Walking in righteousness or faithfulness, if you please. As is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Faithfulness. In fact, all throughout Romans, he says there in Romans 1, 5, chapter 6, verse 17, 15, verse 18, and the last part of it, he says, the gospel brings about or leads to the obedience of faith. Get that? It always leads to the obedience of faith. Faithfulness is a genuine mark or essential mark of every genuine saint. In fact, in Revelation 17, verse 14, here the Lord comes back with all the saints, and that will be you and me who are redeemed. He comes back with us and says, These will wage war against the Lamb. That's the Antichrist and the world system, his armies. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And listen, this says, And those who are with him are the called and chosen. Did you see that in Ephesians 1? They're the called and the chosen and the faithful. There it is. Number two, 
our response to God for so great a salvation, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says that. Paul just verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As I said, we often find ourselves asking, asking, asking. And sometimes you know you need to stop asking. Just say, God, I want to sit in your presence and bless you. How do you do that? Well, I would recommend that you take this passage of Scripture and just talk it back to God. And praise Him for all that He's already done for you. His Son and the Holy Spirit. Maybe you read the Psalms and you take a Psalm and you read through that and just talk it back and say, Oh God, I thank you for revealing yourself on the pages of Scripture. Thank you for what you did for David. And you know, thank you for what you've done for I mean, when you start to begin to enumerate the spiritual blessings, and we have five of them there, but you can go way beyond that as well, what God has done for you. I mean, the life he's given you, the family he's given you, the job he's given you, the food he's given you, the, the place you live. I mean, that, that, that list just goes on and on. But you literally take the time to say, I want to sit in your presence, and I just want to praise you and thank you and bless you for being my God and for doing all this for me. Amazing. That's an act of worship on your part my part. Thirdly, be holy and blameless before God. I realize there's overlapping in some of this. By being faithful, you should be holy and blameless before God. Verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. By the way, this is, first of all, going to be our future standing. I love that. I need to hear that. You need to hear that. Because why? Because you fail and fall into sin like I do. And you get disgusted with yourself. This will be our future standing. You might want to write these verses down. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. He says, just as Christ also loved the church. Let's stop there. It doesn't mean you love the First Baptist Church. Did you figure that out? The church means the ones who are called out and saved. Throughout the whole world, the church, that's what it means. Not a building, but a people who are redeemed. It says, just as he loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, that means make her holy, separated to God, having cleansed her. I love it. Having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word. What does that mean? He cleansed me, cleansed you by the washing of the water of the word. What's that mean? It means you heard the gospel. That's the word. And in faith, you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and he says, I cleansed you. I gave you my son's righteousness. That's what he's talking about there. What happens? That he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. There it is. Began it with that. He ends it with that. That she would be holy and blameless. In Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 and 22, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, I like this, engaged in evil deeds. That's the world, isn't it? Engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, here it is, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Are you, listen, 
does it grab your being to think that one day you're going to be in the Lord's presence perfect? No more sin. All gone, forever gone. No more battle with that. No battle with, battle with the world system. I mean, you're going to be in his presence perfect. That's the greatness of this salvation. I like Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in his presence of his glory. Blameless, and listen to this, with great joy. You may not experience it now, but you're sure going to experience it then. You're going to stand in His presence with great joy, being blameless to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There it is again through Him. Be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. You see, you look at Ephesians 1, these three stanzas and the praise that goes with them, and it moves on your heart to say, I want to live that way. I really do want to invest in my Christian life that he's given me and be faithful and be holy and blameless. And this is to be our day-to-day quest. Remember Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 16? Paul says, work out your salvation. Don't work for it. Got that? Don't work for it. You get it by faith. It's a gift. But work out that which is already your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what's doing when you hear this message. That's what's happening when you're reading Ephesians chapter 1. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Boy, that gets to us. No, that's, wait a minute, Paul, that's getting into my shoes. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves, here it is, to be blameless. And innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And that's what we are living in, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast or holding forth the word of life. In first or Second Peter 3, 14, 14 and 15, he talked about all these elements are going to be burned up. The Lord's going to come back. He says, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, are you looking for them? Today, are you looking for them? Be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. And by the way, I say, Lord, just please come. And somebody said, no, no, i got people that want to get saved. I said, well, maybe they'll get saved during the terrible time of the tribulation. So I get, my heart just goes out. I don't want that to happen to him. Well, I'll tell you what. It says here that he be patient because mark it as patience on the Lord's part to reach them before he comes. In 1 Peter 1, 14-19, as obedient children, there's that obedient word again. The gospel brings about obedience. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address his Father, oh, we saw that all over. Verses 3 through 14. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear. There that word is again. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
Well, there's a fourth response that you and I can have to this great salvation. Be to the praise of his glory. (laughs) Be to the praise of his glory. Verse 12, that's what he says. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. What's that? What's that? Well, is it not my working out my salvation with fear and trembling? Knowing that it's God who's working me, causing me to will and work for his good pleasure? Is that not you and me growing daily in his grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and being transformed from glory to even more glory by the Lord the Spirit? In other words, becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that not the answer to Paul's prayer in verses 18 through 19? Look at that. Ephesians 1, I pray, he says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. Did you get a hold of that in these first 14 verses? What is the hope of his calling of you? And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Did you grab a hold of that in those 14 verses? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. I mean, you you talk about the power of God. He says, I'm going to get you safely home. I'll get you through all of this. In victory? Is it not Paul's answer to his prayer in Philippians 1, 9-11? And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Why? So that you may approve the things that are excellent. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with a fruit of righteousness, here it is, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Dear ones, this is a concert of praise to the God who saved you and me. I think of Charles Wesley, a song that I want to have us sing, that we'll have our pianist come as she would, he says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? I mean, can it be? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Now for me it was only six or seven years. But for some of you it might have been 50 years, 60 years. Maybe some of you are still, still bound that way. But then he says, thine eye diffused a quickening ray. What's he mean? I heard the gospel. You turned my way and looked upon me and shared the gospel. And you introduced yourself to me. I woke. The dungeons flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's a conversion testimonial there in verse 3. Oh, how I love verse 4, though. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. You just saw that. We just beheld that in Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 14. 
that Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me?